0: Welcome to the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. My name is Kelly Rehan, Content Manager for The Almanac, the online publication of The Alliance. In this episode, we continue Dr. Brian McGowan's Legends interview series with featured guest, Dr. Dave Davis. Listen as Dr. Davis shares how continuing education shaped his 50-year medical career and how it made him a better physician. If you like what you hear today, subscribe or leave a review where you listen to podcasts.
1: So I am joined today by Dr. David Davis. Dave, David, can I call you Dave? Absolutely. All right. Um, You and I have known each other for some years and I've certainly known you for far longer. In keeping with the theme of these interviews, would you mind taking us back to the earliest days? So your days in practice, even before the education world kind of caught your eye, can you walk us through practice when and what was the environment at the time?
2: Yeah, so I started practicing in Burlington, Ontario in the early 70s, so 1970s for those of you who need to have an exact date.
1: That's 30 years ago, right? Is 30, my
2: master right? No, okay. You no, know, even more than that, right? Okay. 50 years ago and at the time I started practice, there was no training in family medicine, so I did a rotating internship. I did two years of pathology because I loved pathology. And I wound up in practice. And on day one in practice, family medicine, fairly small community at the time, it dawned on me that I didn't know enough to practice. So I almost right away began looking for continuing education to take part in. What was a course that I heard about and then saw a brochure for? called the the University of Ottawa Refresher Program for Family Physicians. So I'll say I started in July or August, and this might've been September, October. So I went, and it was three days of note-taking lectures by specialists to us as family doctors, 250 people in the room, family docs in the room, maybe the occasional nurse. In those days, no nurse practitioners. Very little questioning, you'd have maybe an hour set aside for hip replacement surgery, for example, and five minutes of that conversation would be some questions from the floor. Anyway, I took copious notes and came back and didn't use one of them because they weren't relevant to what I needed. So thank God for my, my practice partners and thank God for a quite active hospital staff, which had begun its own form of continuing education. And just about that time, somebody was looking for one of the sort of Department of Medicine heads was looking for a young person. I was young at the time, but hair at the time, to chair a committee called the Interprofessional Education Council. So here's me, almost brand new in practice, thinking I've got a committee which is responsible for continuing education. And that started my interest in continuing it. If you looked at the first year's worth of lectures and seminars and small group learning activities, most of them were structured around what I needed. <laughs> so, talk about a needs assessment, it was my needs assessment. Anyhow, it certainly whet my appetite for the organization of continuing education activities, for the kind of local needs assessment, if you will, the development of communities of practice. We did a lot with a comparatively small department of family medicine, we did a lot. And I think made me a better physician. And that linkage, the better physician to the continuing education gestalt and organization of continuing education has lasted me my whole career. The environment in the early
1: 70s in family medicine doesn't seem like it jives entirely with interprofessional as we know it today, right? It was... Back then it was not, you know, that idea was, it was much more hierarchical in practice, wasn't
2: it? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, we invited to grand rounds in medicine. We invited all the nursing staff and PT staff and occupational therapists And those days were just beginning. And I had a surgeon turn to me the first interprofessional rounds that we did and say, you know, if there's a nurse in this room, I know I'm not going to be learning anything. So there was a, pushback, I guess you'd call it, which I just ignored. I thought, you know, I'm going to be learning lots from nurses. I have to learn from everybody. And so my thought at the time, my thought still is the more interdisciplinary, the more interprofessional, the better. And so we just kind of rolled on. And those people either slowly changed in time or retired. So, but you're right. The seventies was very unidisciplinary very uh, uncollaborative. Even between family physicians, we shared office space and shared calls, but it would be an unusual case where you would share the entire details or share your charts. That's all much different today in, in primary care.
1: In some way, I almost, and I don't know if it's the environment, you know, in the back of my mind, i always have this Canadian healthcare system versus US healthcare system differences in my mind. I almost feel like you just dramatically simplified the change management that's been going on for the last forty-five years to get away from that hierarchical model. Like, yeah, so, yeah. so someone pushes back at you, and you ignore them, and you continue on with interprofessional. And we're still talking 1974, 1975 in the United States. It's 2012, 2015 before. We see this groundswell of i p e and learning from with and and about each other, and I can think of anecdotes eight or nine years ago where I had physicians come to me and say, "If there was a nurse in the room, I'm probably not going to be learning anything right so so did it yeah. shift Did
2: it really shift that dramatically where you were uh, no i think I think it's a slow evolution, so I was kind of tongue in cheek when I said. Those docs retired, some of those docs retired, some of them stayed and continued in the same hierarchical fashion that you've just described. Some of them stayed on. So I think, in part, it's a payment opportunity. That is to say, if it's a fixed payor, as it is in the Canadian environment, there's a tendency to get the less expensive individual, the least expensive but most competent individual in a team setting to look after the patient. So it might be a nurse practitioner, might be a sure. nurse, might be a physical therapist, it might be the family doctor, might be the surgeon, right? But to begin to think about those things. And I think it's just because of the sort of managed care atmosphere versus the the way in which our more socialized medicine is delivered in the Canadian environment. I think we probably just saw the light a little bit clearer, but also had to reorganize around teams. I think the big breakthrough in interprofessional education is still not quite there. I mean, what we call interprofessional education is often the doctor and the nurse sitting together, listening to the same lecture, but not truly interacting in a way that helps patient care. that team-based learning. I mean, that's much more than it was, but it's still probably got a ways to go. So maybe 25 years from now, we'll be talking in that truly team-based, truly interprofessional, interdisciplinary manner where every health professional is respected and every opinion is respected. And it's the patient outcome that counts at the end of the day, not who's the doctor in the room.
1: Yeah. And I, I think of the different constructs within education, I think I've not had Tremendous exposure to the interprofessional interdisciplinary other than through the definitions and through the alliance Mm -hmm. in certain ways. One thing that always stuck with me is, you know, bringing the different professions together, but not within the team. So you get a room, as you suggested, with a bunch of nurses and a bunch of pharmacists and a bunch of clinicians, but they're all operating in different systems and different teams. Right, right, right. That's, that, that's moving the needle, but maybe, maybe one degree or two degrees. And really what you need, I think, to meet the ultimate effectiveness of truly interprofessional is just to jump right into the team. I mean, it's the choreography of the team. It's the system. It's the location. Right. It seems like all that implementation sciences of teams. And there's fascinating science there.
2: Oh, for sure. For sure. It's a real challenge for us, isn't it? Because you talk about so where we need to go in continuing professional development. It's much more away from the large lecture, whether it's done by Zoom or sitting in the same holiday in room, right? To move away from that into something that's much more practice-based, focused on the patient, much more team-based. I mean, that's the breakthrough. That's harder to deliver, just kind of logistically, harder to deliver. Not impossible by a long shot, but it's where we need to go as a profession or as a discipline.
0: Like what you hear on the Alliance podcast? Visit almanac.acehp.org to read the latest continuing professional development news and insights. Visit today to get informed and inspired.
1: So interprofessional was this kind of entree into continuing professional development. And tell me about the next decade, or is the focus primarily interprofessional? Because certainly yeah. as you start to go through your publications, there's a, a unique kind of focus on physician learning, I would say.
2: Yeah, yeah. So if I can um, just describe in my own words sort of what I, I think I just heard you say Which is, we think, I I think physicians particularly are cursed with this image of being isolated, singular, unique decision makers, sort of operating solo in a way. That's how we're trained, right? I mean, you're competing against everybody else in your class of 200 students. You have to shine in morning rounds. It's you who does it, right? You who gets the marks individually. So I think the shift towards teaching and learning in that group setting, even the responsibility for team-based care, I mean, that's a huge shift. So if we can get to that, then I think we've gotten to where we need to go, right? So for me, the next decade was in part because of the pushback against interprofessional education, in part because I was really interested in the continuing education intervention. I moved part-time to McMaster University. So I was in practice in a comparatively small community near Hamilton, Ontario. And McMaster University was a pretty much brand new medical school, faculty of health sciences. And they were looking for a director of CME and I threw my hat in the ring thanks to a kind soul who put my hat in the ring, and I got the job, right? And here's me in this brand new medical school with real strengths in epidemiology, clinical epidemiology, but also just biostatistics, and a real bent towards innovation, both educational innovation as well as clinical care innovation. So those two or three strands came together around thinking about, does continuing education work? So for example, almost the first day in my new environment, medical school environment, I went to meet the dean. The dean was a very famous guy, quite a large, imposing figure. I was young and as I said earlier, I had hair. And I went to see this guy and he said to me, the very first words out of his mouth were, does CME work? And I said, what, what do you mean? I thought if I said uh, no, because I was remembering my course at the University of Ottawa, if i said no i'd be fired and i'd not get my first paycheck right instead i said well i guess it depends on what you mean by work right and he said what would you mean by work and i said well improving patients care i guess and maybe how about improving patient outcomes he said if we can't prove in, in this university we can't prove that what we're doing in education doesn't improve patient care outcomes then we shouldn't be doing it right so that was almost day 1 this sense of almost urgency that we had to uh, test models of continuing education delivery from small group learning to large activities to not online learning in those days, but kind of programmed learning. So we did a whole bunch of stuff all around the focus of does it improve outcomes? I was fortunate in that my Department of Family Medicine, which I joined at that time, and the Department of Epidemiology and the whole structure of education was resource rich in those days. And so I could turn to almost anybody and ask questions like, how would I measure the outcome of a particular educational intervention? How would I know that a doctor learned something? So we developed some great randomized control trials, some great studies, ethnographic studies or more qualitative studies, as well as the quantitative ones. And that got me interested in this field of meta-analysis or systematic reviews. In some ways, easier than doing the randomized control trial itself, in some ways harder, but also part of the McMaster gestalt, if you would, or philosophy of McMaster, which is we can't create all the studies, but we can look at everybody's studies and roll them up into a bundle, which gives us some lessons. So this is
1: very late 70s, early 80s. Correct. Okay. And your dean says, does it work? And- you say to him, Well, do you mean Moore's level four or Moore's level five? Yeah. Right? Isn't that the right response
2: at the time, yeah. right? There, you well, have this framework. That's right. It would have been if Don Moore had been around, but see, exactly the guy. So <laughs> no, this is before Moore. So but Moore certainly established it. And we talked about the sort of levels of competence and the performance. And we talked about those things, but didn't have the model that Don so so nicely provided for all of us to think about.
1: I'm trying to put the time together. Moore's Don, Henry, Harry, and Joe, that work, that dates back originally to an article in 93. That's the first hint at the framework, eventually published in 2009, uh, or 2003, and then 2009. Miller's was the precursor to that? I yeah, thought I was that thinking. was early '80s, and that's like the the simple does shows how knows how knows yeah, exactly, model,
2: right. right? Yeah,
1: right. And so you're not bothering yourself with an outcomes framework. You're focused on distinct measures that are structured enough for a randomized clinical trial. So, right,
2: right. and the more objective, of course, the better. So, those that you can demonstrate, those that you can look at, which implies performance. Those are better than those which you just assume, right, and which a physician or health professional might self-report and maybe change the results slightly because of the self-report. So for us, the holy grail, the gold standard was, did the doctor actually, as a result of this interprofessional education course, did the doctor communicate with the nurse in a different manner, in a real-world setting? So it was that real-world setting that we were kind of interested in. And and the Yeah. Complex-
1: and the- yeah. Well, the, the complexity there is we struggle to relate learning of an individual to behaviors or outcomes because of systems challenges, because of balancing measures, because of unintended consequences, because of time, right? And structuring the intervention, episodic, the intensity of the intervention for an individual. Then you add a team in there, and this just got exponentially more confounded. And so I can only imagine you can recount hundreds of times where you looked at some data pertaining to an individual learner. And if you looked at their performance data, this is what you prescribed. It's a little bit easier, or this is what your records demonstrate. You bring in patient outcomes and now was the patient compliant? Was right. have, The complexity of all that, I think this is maybe your point about sometimes meta-analysis is easier than the randomized trials. And sometimes <laughs> the randomized trials are easier. Sure. How much of a struggle was all that? Let's be more specific. In 1992, the first JAMA meta-analysis, which dates back to a smaller meta-analysis that was maybe done about eight or 10 years earlier, yeah. and that is answering your dean's question, right? Yeah. Does it work? That's and,
2: right. Attempting. Yeah.
1: Right. So JAMA 92, does CME work? and you've got to decide on your trial inclusion exclusion criteria. You've right. got to decide on what you're going to define as, does it work? Do you remember, fly on the wall, any of those conversations about what you move forward with and why?
2: Yeah, you described it like it was a struggle, and I I suppose in some ways it was, although it was made much easier by great colleagues. So McMaster had this sort of way, but it was a bit like Camelot, you know, you could, if you could think about it, if you could create it in the hallway, if you could just get enough energy and enthusiasm behind a concept, and these were new studies, I mean, to look at physician performance and to develop an educational intervention that might alter that performance, that was all very exciting, because nobody else had done it, or if they had done it, they'd done it in an earlier manner without the rigidity of performance criteria, et cetera, right? And without that deep educational understanding that the educators brought to the table. So although it was a struggle, I mean, for sure. I mean, my wife would say, you know, there were times that we couldn't sit in the dining room because you had piles of randomized controlled trial papers stacked everywhere, right? So I'm sure it was a struggle, but it was fun and enjoyable and we could see the outcomes and we thought we were improving the product and we thought although oh, there's, there's decay right there's decay from what the doc knows as a result of a course for example to what he might remember she might remember and then what she or he might do and then decay even more I can't see my hand dropping here but uh, my hand's dropping down almost to the floor where maybe the patient does what the doctor asks him or her to do but maybe he doesn't. So there's, there's even more to it. So to watch that and to tease apart the bits that worked as opposed to the parts that didn't work, that was more fun, I think, than anything. So,
1: And so in that decision that the initiatives or activities had to include, I think like 50% or more clinicians in them, they yeah. had to have some follow-up. That in some ways, I think we could dissect the 92 paper, and which I, I got to believe, well, I mean, just for duration, it has to be your most cited work, closely followed by the 99 JAMA paper, yeah, right, which yeah, is maybe yeah. your most infamous work.
2: Yes, that's right. CME doesn't work, right? Yeah. Right.
1: Okay, so, so there are a couple things, not, not to go into every nook and cranny of the original meta-analysis. There were a couple things that were interesting to me and they may be weird things for me to pick up from the research okay. one is when you went to collect and identified 777 studies you just went to your macbook pro and brought up on the internet pubmed right and pulled up every in this is 1992 like even yeah. the the collection of the data The collection, a collation of the trials is a different generation, several generations ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the paper that this was benefited because there was a database that had been collected and collated since 1979 of educational research.
2: That's right, right. Yeah. And we created something called, uh, because it was difficult, it was, I guess you could describe it as fugitive. The literature existed in educational journals and clinical journals, in some epidemiologically oriented journals, which were just developing at the time. So we created something called the RDRB, the Resource and Development Resource Base, because you couldn't link databases in the ways that you could do today, uh, because it was more difficult to find. We, we contained, and we, we held that database owned by the society at the end, Society of Academic CME, at the end, with a bit of help from the Alliance over the years, we, we at the University of Toronto, subsequent to McMaster University, owned, collected, and kept that database and reported on it reasonably regularly. Now, because of the the strength of the search engines and because the infrastructure and technology has changed so much, the RDRB, there's no need for the RDRB to exist. But I think it served its purpose at the time. Because you could also pick up things that you weren't analyzing in that randomized controlled trial center. There are lots of before, after studies, lots of ethnographic studies that we could pick up on. And so we keyworded things by theme, by content area, by the kind of clinicians who attended it or took part in continuing education activities. One of the great benefits, if I can talk about the RDRB, is that it expanded our mind, you know, you think when you, collect things, you put them in a bucket, right? And so what you learn is that the bucket is much bigger than you think it is. Data science. This is data science in the
1: 80s or late 70s. And you think you've got all your attributes clean and you're like, wow, we forgot... Yeah, duration. Let's go back and try to figure out if we can pull duration forward through all this.
2: Here's a little example. What about hallway consultations? I mean, isn't that continuing education? One specialist speaks to another specialist in about a field that he doesn't know. Surgeon talks to the psychiatrist in the hallway. Isn't that educated? Sure, that was in the RDRB. R- RDRB. The the kinds of things you could think of because you put in the sort of parameters, the search terms, the things that had to do with physician performance and therefore healthcare outcomes was actually very rich. So we learned we learned a lot in the process, and we learned a lot from the outcome of the RDRB.
1: You said that there's no longer a need for RDRB, and I don't know that I agree with that. I think that the unlimited access to the literature that's been generated by the species for the last 20 years so greatly dilutes and challenges our ability to find the right literature and the reduction of what we've actually accomplished as a profession. And what you could never convince me didn't have value is the collation by experts. And that collation by experts allowed individuals who didn't have the ability to, to truly analyze whether it's good quality research or bad quality mm-hmm. research. If it was yeah. in the RDRB and I'm a first-year instructional designer or a first-year CME department person, I felt like I had 97 99% trust that that was an article that I could take something from. And
2: that doesn't exist right now. This could be a conversation just by itself because you've touched on some very powerful elements. I think the first thing to say is we may not have, we were in Toronto then, my team and I, and maybe we didn't promote it enough, or maybe the society didn't utilize it in a way, or maybe if it was utilized, people didn't understand its name. The name was far less important than the fact that it existed. But that being said, I think it speaks to some things in our discipline that maybe we should flag. One of them is, this sense of there is a literature it's a huge and deep literature and maybe you could use it if you're designing something right or evaluating it or assessing the needs that this is attempting to meet. so i think it speaks to that maybe sure there is this sense of we know it you know you've been to a conference or a course so therefore you know how to organize it when in fact there is a literature behind it so there's that that sense as well and the third thing which is quite powerful for me is the sense that we're in the healthcare performance change business and less in the educational business education is always a tool and a tool to do something so in this case it's to improve patient care I mean that's that's what it's all about. It's not to fill the holiday in necessarily or make the dean happy because you're in the black as opposed to in the red, right? So, so I think I think all of those things are things maybe we need. The alliance has been very strong in this area. Uh, the society has been strong in this area as well, and maybe we should just continue to push the discipline in that direction.
0: Being an alliance member has its perks, from discounts industry-leading events like the Alliance Annual Conference to members-only access to the Alliance Learning Center. The Alliance is where healthcare CE professionals come to learn. Visit acehp.org membership to join today.
1: It's the windmill I've jousted for 15 years.
2: Sure. Yeah.
1: I I, I said this in my conversation with Joe Green a couple episodes ago that in 2009, 2010, I put out a call for where the next generation of educational scientists is and specifically had a picture of you and Joe and Barbara and Don and said, these are our forefathers from which we shouldn't have to make too many decisions that haven't been informed by what they've done, right? And and this, I think, is the scientific method that's just lost on many in the community. It's one thing to say, we've run a meeting like this for five or six years, and it's been successful by however you define it. It's another thing to say, There are three other ways we could have held the meeting and which one's more successful, which one has a greater impact. And this kind of lack of moving forward based on something we know, I think is just a a skill that the community doesn't necessarily have. So in in many ways, Dave, that last 45 seconds is the origin for this interview series, right? I need the voices of experience to shed light on what we learned in the the 70s, 80s, 90s, and noughts about what we could... Because the themes that keep happening is things that were recognized, the RDRB as a source that informs and almost a registry that facilitates future research. That need, I would argue, is every bit as strong today as it was then. It's almost like as 30 or 40 years have gone by, we've made progress, tremendous progress in many different ways, but in many other ways, that progress has been ignored or overlooked. In many ways, I think the difference between the fame of the 92 manuscript, the meta-analysis, and the infamy of the 99 manuscript is that they were in Jama. Right. Right. That that I talk about this often. Like for people who don't understand literature and don't understand research, the imprimatur of Jama lowers their resistance to almost nothing. Something that's published in academic medicine probably isn't getting on their radar. And if it is, you're like, okay, well, it's academic medicine. Just yeah. what, what am I supposed to do with it? Yeah, yeah. And, and so three publications in JAMA in many ways have created the capital D Dave, capital D Davis outside of the SACME circle. I, and you and I talked about a little bit about this when we were prepping inside the circle the rigor of all of your research, I think, has established your legacy outside the SACME circle. I think Dave Davis has these three or four publications that have really defined, in certain ways, errors within the community. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Like the, It's popularism. It's the, those became pop articles because they were in JAMA. They became popular, the, the good definition of that.
2: Yeah. That that when you talked about a struggle earlier, that was the struggle to get it into Jama. So in my in my head, I thought, well, we'll aim a little bit lower. One of my colleagues said, no, let's take this. Just your very point. If you want this to be read and widely accepted and adopted, then let's think and think hard about what Jama would take. I had I had on both occasions ninety two and ninety nine. I had very good editor who helped me a lot, as well as my team, of course. So I wanted to make a point if I could know our time, perhaps a little bit limited, but we talked about interprofessional education a few minutes ago, and that had to do with the doc and the nurse and the pharmacist trying to help that patient. I wonder if we shouldn't also be thinking about true interdisciplinarity in continuing professional development. It may be that What we need to do, the Alliance has attempted to do this probably as well as or better than any other organization that I know about on the globe, which is to bring together a variety of perspectives, a variety of professionals, from the educator to the quality improvement specialist to the implementation scientist, to the knowledge translation worker, to the social psychologist, you name it, right? So I wonder if in a true interdisciplinary fashion, We can't all, a little like the blind guys and the elephant, right? A, we can't see the beast a little bit differently, right? And also create something which is much more proactive, engaging, interact with all the outcome metrics that you want to apply to it. Do you see hope for us in the profession? I do. I think I see different people sitting around the table when I go to society meetings. But I expect the field is enlarging but that also adds an academic slash scientific element that I don't know that we've always embraced and nurtured.
1: I would agree with that. I think I I fully agree with that. Let me see if I can segue and build on that. So in the 99 article you, and I'll get back to it. I'm not, I'm not sidestepping you like a presidential debate here. I'm I'm hopefully addressing it in the 99 article you lay out these different formats of education, the traditional formats of education. And through the meta-analysis structure, and you speak to the fact that of the didactic interventions, they were 0 for 4 on improving physician performance or patient care. For the interactive, they were like, you basically lay out the fact that the most traditional, the most basic, the singularly didactic, the episodic show very little data about improving performance and patient outcomes. And yet they're the ones that are most beloved. In many cases, like the types of interventions that truly impact care, neither the educator nor the learner wants to take the time and dedicate the energy to commit to those things. And what struck me, again, uh, of one of them, the hands on the elephant, what struck me is Robert Bjork's work on desirable difficulties and everything we know about irrationality and if you ask people what they want or what they think works for them, especially as it comes to learning, they're almost inversely related to what actually they need and what works for them. And so you start to think about who needs to be sitting around our education table or who needs to be sitting around this interventional healthcare table, our sets of interventions that we can improve healthcare with. Well, behavioral psychologists and cognitive psychologists and the folks who actually understand how behavior changes.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Right. The folks who aren't anchored to these heuristics that knowing equals doing and therefore all I need to do is share the information with them. And that person's really responsible to implement it. We now have your full careers worth of data has been paralleled by Tversky's career of data and Kahneman's career of mm-hmm. data and everything we know about cognitive psychology and behavioral mm-hmm. economics. And those people, and sociology and anthropology, and those people would never look at a 5,000 person didactic lecture in a hotel room as being the slightest of logical interventions if you're mm-hmm. trying to improve patient care, right?
2: right. right. Exactly right, yeah. And
1: And so, so I don't know that it's the quality improvement people I, I think that's a certainly a step in the right direction, but I've spent a number of years at the IHI annual meeting and interacting with QI specialists. Mm-hmm. And I find that their perspective is also still anchored to this aut- autonomous self-directed adult individual who is responsible for their own knowledge change yeah, and their yeah. own behavior change. I, like, to me, that table, you, we started this with McMasters as being Camelot
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm
1: stuck now with uh, King Arthur's round table.
2: <laughs> right, right, right.
1: There's so many people that need to be there. So so let me the the I'll end this with one other. We'll go, we'll fast forward to Jama and 06. Yeah. And I don't know that this is as infamous as the 99 paper, but the 06 paper basically says, again, through a rather vigorous meta-analyses that self-assessment is generally unreliable.
2: Yeah, if it's uninformed, I think, and it's not just true of physicians or nurses, it's true of us as humans, I think, without some feedback, without some objective, your parent telling you, you know, that's something you shouldn't be doing, right? We may not recognize it in ourselves, partly because of our own self-esteem issues, partly because of our own kind of way of viewing the world. Unless somebody tells you that you're going too fast, like a speedometer or the policeman telling you, you're going too fast, you may not be able to perceive. That's all that article says, really. It doesn't say anything new. I think the two articles you referred to in the 90s, they were relatively new and they were in a a vehicle that, as you said, communicated without many barriers or was accepted, right? Whereas the other... Is really a distillation of other people's research, idea. But, but a
1: critical distillation. And this is why I want to end on it because that that recognition through that meta analyzes of the deficiencies in self-assessment is every is a I think infinitely greater than people would acknowledge. They may tip their hat to it and say, "Yeah, I mean, self-assessment isn't isn't you know, it's not black and white. It's it's often troubled." What Kahneman and Tversky and behavioral economists say is it's not the irrationality or the lack of clarity in hindsight that's the problem. It's our disbelief that there is a problem. It's not that there is a problem. It's that we ignore that those inaccuracies in memory or hindsight or decision-making exist. And therefore we continue to make the same problems. So close the circle if we embrace '06's research around self-assessment and the pantheon of additional self-assessment, self-report research, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and we look at it through our own lens in continuing education, then maybe we would have moved away much more quickly or taken the lessons much more truly to heart from the 92 manuscript. And maybe we would have not gotten to the point where we needed something like the 99 manuscript to recognize that what we're doing on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. isn't informed by additional feedback. And maybe the interprofessional work you did early in your career, maybe that ties the bow around it perfectly because, as a single clinician, without the feedback and the perspective of your team, you can't optimally perform.
2: For, for sure. I was trying to think of a way to tie a bow around all of this too. I think what I was attempting to do in that latter study, the 2006 study, was to invert the picture because we knew what was happening in continuing education. We could watch the interventions changing, academic detailing, growing, for example, having some clout and some merit, of course, and being able to demonstrate some change. But there was still this element that I didn't understand, except ironically, it was my own error, which is my own self assessment abilities as a clinician needed to be teased apart. So I think. What I attempted to do is to look at the kind of macro picture, if you would, this sort of sense of what all the randomized controlled trials have to say about the interventions, and then turn it on its head and say, so what do we know from studies about what goes on inside the physician head? But that makes it too simplistic. I mean, that's just a very simplistic view. It's kind of like a Rubik's cube. It isn't just two sides. It's multi-sided, right? And all those sides you described it earlier as being very complex. It is very complex. It's a wealth of research questions and research methodologies that we still have to learn and still have to apply in order to change the field, I think.
1: I appreciate your time today. I can't imagine a world in which we don't do this at least one or two more times.
2: (laughs) It's great to talk to you too, Brian. I wish you very well.
1: Thank you for joining us, Dave. Have a great day.
2: All right, you too. Thanks,
0: Brian. Thank you for listening to the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay updated on future releases. In the meantime, we invite you to access our wealth of continuing professional development content on the Almanac at almanac.acehp.org. Until next time.